We're certainly glad to be together today to join with our brothers and sisters in worshiping our God. That is our primary objective today, to worship God and to render unto him the praise that he richly deserves. But we also come together to give comfort to one another, to those who are struggling and to those who are sad, to be a benefit to our brothers and sisters. And for those of you that are visiting with us, you are already providing us with a great benefit the pleasure of your company this morning, the fact that you've gathered to worship our God together today is indeed an honor for us, and we're thankful for your presence. I invite you to open your Bibles and follow along this morning. I'm going to start with a very familiar passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, a passage that probably is memorized by a number of you. And certainly anybody that has ever preached for whether it be one or two sermons or for many a, a, an easily memorizable verse and one that is important to memorize as well. I use it as a disclaimer because in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2, a verse that as a young preacher I was taught to memorize, he says, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season to convince, to rebuke, and to exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. And there's so much just in that one verse. And that's not the topic of our study together today. But I use that verse, as I said a moment or so ago, almost as a, a legal disclaimer that I may say things from time to time, including today, that may be offensive, that may be bothersome, that may cause you to say, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure that I agree with the points that you're making today. And that's okay. You don't have to agree with me, but you do have to agree with what the Bible has to say on the subject. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And so I want us to deal with the subject that we live in a religious world that is very confusing, where there are so many different religious beliefs, sects, or denominations that we need to be a part of understanding what is right about service to our God with these false denominational pleas. And so when thinking about that, I thought about the title is the word false, which is an adjective, is it talking about denominations or is it talking about pleas? And I guess you could say it's talking about both. But we're going to talk about four of the pleas that denominations would have us to believe and then simply close by asking how would we respond to these pleas or what is it that we should do in response. This is a sermon that in many ways goes back to some first principles but it's important for those of us as seasoned Christians to be ready to defend the truth and the Lord's church. And it's also important for those who may be here this morning that may come from a denominational background. And you may be thinking that I'm doing the things that are right. And we may point out some things this morning that you understand differently as a result of what we talked about today. I want us to start with what we mean by a denomination. When I think of the word denomination, I think of the idea of dollar bills and different denominations, or you may think of different groupings. But in a religious connotation or a religious discussion, it is a religious group or branch or part of an overall Christian church. And so when someone says, well, what denomination are you? If, if I had a quarter for every time someone asked me that question, I wouldn't be rich, but I'd have a lot of quarters, right? And so 
people ask us that question all the time when they find out that you pray, they find out that you read the Bible, they find out that you go someplace every Sunday morning like clockwork, and they recognize that you are indeed some form of a religious person. They say, well, where do you go to church or what denomination are you? And there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of denominations that are present in the religious world. And it can be very confusing to figure out what it is that I am. Uh, what do I identify as? And so I'm going to uh, list just three or four of the big denominations that are out there. And again, I, I hope that I'm not offensive to someone who may be of one of these groups, but at the same time to illustrate that there are all kinds of different religious sects that are out there. So when you think about it, there are Baptists that are, uh, that are present, there are Methodists, there are Lutherans, uh, even the Christian church can be described and should be described as a denomination. And each denomination, this is what is important, has its own beliefs and its own practices, which separates one from another. So if you are a Lutheran, that makes you different from a Baptist, which makes you different from a Methodist, based based on the, the practices engaged in your religious services and the beliefs that you are uh, associated with. And generally speaking, most people in the religious world or in the denominational world would say that any church is just as good as another and that one denomination can have a what we call a harmonious relationship with another denomination. That is a very important point to make at the outset of our study together this morning. And that is, uh, you may have different beliefs, but that doesn't mean anything important. We can all have different beliefs and go to the same place. We can all have different beliefs and be a part of the same general concept. The whole idea of Protestantism is the idea that we are all under this big umbrella of religious beliefs of Christianity. And so are you a Baptist Christian or are you a Methodist Christian? Are you a Lutheran Christian? Are you a Christian church Christian? What kind of Christian are you? And of course, we as members of the Lord's church, when we simply read the Bible, we read about Christians, uh, though that word is only used on a couple of different occasions, three different times in scripture, we just read about simple Christians. And that's what we try to be that's what we aspire to be, and that's what we want to be. Let me also say, I have friends that are uh, members of denominations and family that are members of denominations. And I know that I'm not the only one that is present here this morning that says, yeah, I've got neighbors that I'm very friendly with and we get along and we trust each other, but they are not members of the Lord's church. They are uh, of some particular denomination. So I want us to look at four pleas uh, four different arguments made by the religious world and talk about each of those for about three to five minutes. And then I want us to come up with some answers to these, which I hope will be helpful to you when you have conversations with those who are your friends, your family, or your neighbors on this particular subject. One of those is simply this, that one church is as good as another. This plea is associated with choose your own church 
mentality. Uh, depending on where you drive in the country, but especially here in the South, uh, you'll see semi-trucks that say, choose the church of your own choice this week, but make sure you go somewhere. And the whole idea is that one church is the same and as good as another, and it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what church you go to as long as you go to a church. And this goes very well with what our brother Kerry talked about in our Bible class period this morning, and he's doing a good job of talking about the book of Romans, the first eight chapters, in that we can be guilty of checking a box or sitting on the pew or darkening the doors of a church building and saying, I've done what the Lord has wanted me to do. But that's not what the Lord wants us to do solely. It is to do those things, but then to act accordingly as Christians in service to our Lord. But it seems to me, as we're going to look at two very basic and probably familiar passages, that this is in conflict with basic biblical teachings. Turn over, if you would, to the book of Matthew, chapter 16. And I want to read just a couple of verses there in a very familiar part of the gospel according to Matthew. Now, this is a text that is well-worn in your Bibles. There may be a lot of notes that you have made or underlines or circles that you have uh, entered as you uh, put your Bible to the test and see whether these things are true. But go back to verse 13 just to develop a little bit of the context. And Jesus comes to the region of Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples, and he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And so they say, well, there's all these rumors as to who you are. For example, some are saying that you are John the Baptist. Some are saying that you are Elijah. Others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He says, all right, that's what people say that I am. But what about you? I want to know what you think about me. What do you believe about me? So Simon Peter answers in verse 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answers and says, I'm going to give you a great big thumbs up on that kind of statement. If you post that on Facebook, I'm going to like it, Jesus says. And in verse 17, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And I also want to tell you this, and that is, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail and shall not prevail against it. Now, there's so much uh, that could be said about verses 17 and 18 of the book of Matthew chapter 16. Uh, there is a large religious denomination that uh, uses this particular passage to say, here you have Peter as being the foundation of the church. Well, Peter is not the foundation of the church. It is his confession of Jesus as the Christ, as the son of the living God that provides the bedrock principle of, of everything that we believe and everything that we are associated with. But just answer this simple question. And this isn't a trick question, and it's not to be a smart aleck kind of question, but it's just a simple question, how many churches did Jesus build? And in this particular text, it seems very clear to me when he says, I build my church, 
He's saying, this is my husband. When I talk about my wife, when you talk about your husband, you say, this is my husband, this is my wife, this is my child, this is my job, this is my car, this is my house. Usually it's singular in nature in identifying something that belongs to you or something that you take pride in or something that is important to you. Similarly, a second passage, I said there'd be two passages for us to reference in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 4 through 6, where there the apostle Paul says there is one body, there is one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all. So we know from this passage, and by being good Bible students, when you combine that with Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 and some other places, that the body is the church and the church is the body, that those two are synonymous with each other. And so, again, just ask the very basic question, how many bodies did Paul recognize? How many churches did he recognize? Now, It is true that it didn't take very long into the development of the first and second centuries A.D. when the church was established that groups began to split off and to follow various preachers, which we'll talk about in our third or our fourth observation, our fourth plea. But when the church was founded, it was founded as a singular organization built by Jesus on the foundation that he is the Christ, the son of a living God. And that's why when this particular group first got together, however many decades ago, and said, we're going to create a a church here. Uh, We're going to create a congregation here. We're going to have a group of people here. And so we're going to call ourselves the church that belongs to Christ. In part because we see that phrase used uh, in Scripture, but in part because let's not get creative with Jesus' name. Let's just stick with Jesus' name because it makes sense in the first place. Plea number two is this, and that is we can believe differently and still be okay with Jesus Christ. Now, this plea, it seems to me, is rooted in the vine and branch analogy. We're not going to take the time to reread what our brother Ben read for us in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. But that's why I had him read that passage. Because we look at that passage and we come away with a a conclusion that is different than those in the denominational world. We look at that passage and say, Jesus is the vine. We are the branches. In fact, there's a song in our songbook that says, I am the vine and ye are the branches, bear precious fruit. And so we are the branches that belong to Jesus. And indeed, in John chapter 15, he says, if you are not faithful to the vine, I'll cut you off. I'll prune you. Because as you know, and as those of you that garden or grow flowers, that you have to get rid of the dead so that that which is still alive can flourish in a more appropriate fashion. And that's what Jesus seems to be referencing here in John chapter 15. In the denominational world or in an argument, you have Jesus, the vine, and you have the Baptist branch, and then you have a Methodist branch, you have a Lutheran branch, you have all these different branches all connected to the vine. 
And that's not what Jesus was saying there in John chapter 15, based on the context of what he's saying very late in his life as he's talking to his followers. Instead of teaching that the branches are denominations, this passage teaches about individual disciples as highlighted, particularly in verse 8. And remember this that it would seem odd to me that Jesus is talking about different churches or denominations in existence because at this point in John chapter 15, which comes before Acts chapter 2, both in the way that the Bible is, is, is structured and in the way that the timeline is, works, there's no church that is even established at this point. Let me share with you two other really quick passages, one also from the Gospel of John and one from the Gospel of Matthew. But first of all, in John chapter 17 and in verse 21, this is the uh, text of, a, of, the length of, of the longest prayer uh, that Jesus ever prayed that is recorded. I would hasten to say it's not the longest prayer he ever prayed. Because to pray the words of John chapter 17 takes all of about maybe two to three minutes. And when I have the picture of Jesus praying, I have of uh, scores of minutes, if not hours, of him praying to his father. But there in John chapter 17, he says that they all may be one, is my plea, that they may be united as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. This is what Jesus wanted. And similarly, in Matthew chapter 7, very late in that great sermon on the mountaintop, as he's drawing to a close, Jesus says, you can't just say, well, I believe a little bit in Jesus, and so that's good enough for me. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, hearkens back to the days of Jeremiah, the temple, the temple. He says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Three times the phrase in your name is used. And he says, I'm going to tell them, I don't know who you are. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These passages, it seems to me, and I think you would agree with me, reinforce the conformity to one doctrine and to one church. And so these, again, are our basic first principles of Christianity that we as more seasoned Christians need to be reminded of. But those who may come from a denominational world may find this very, very surprising and potentially uh, offensive. Our goal is not to be offensive. Our goal is to be truthful. And if that is offensive, uh, well, New Testament preaching was offensive to many, and so we'll just let the chips fall where they may and hope that you, it falls on good hearts. Plea number three is that separate and different beliefs don't really matter. You know, so, so you call yourself uh, church A, and you call yourself church B, and you call yourself church C, whatever that may be, and we've got different beliefs, but that doesn't matter. We're all still focused on Jesus, because it is true, using the Baptists, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Christian church, or whatever denomination you're talking about, that they all believe in Jesus, and most of them believe that Jesus died for the salvation of mankind and died on the cross so that we would have hope. But this plea is the idea that as long as you believe in something about Jesus or in some of the top three aspects of Jesus, the details don't matter. 
But this is in conflict with three of Jesus' statements made in the book of John. So I want to go back to the Gospel of John, and I want to look at three passages here very quickly as we make three observations. Three things that Jesus says that says this is actually false. And so that goes back to the whole idea of the title, false denominational police. The first of those is in John chapter 8. And beginning in verse 31, we may go back and pick up a verse to establish just a little bit of context here. And it says that many uh, believed in Jesus as he was speaking these words in chapter 8 and verse 30. But then in verse 31, Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You say, well, what does this first have to do with denominationalism? Well, it seems to me that to abide in the word requires a strong development in adhering to the commands of Jesus Christ himself. I can't say, well, I'm, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to abide in his word. I must abide in his word. And as we talked about in our Bible class this morning... And in referencing something that David recently said, I have to have a true love and devotion to the truth. I love the truth. That's why we stress Bible studies so much. That's why we come together on occasions like Sunday morning, Wednesday evening. That's why we have gospel meetings throughout the year. That's why we challenge you to have family devotionals. That's why we challenge you to study on your own. Because to abide in the word requires an adherence to his commands. Similarly, in the book of John chapter 12, just turn over three pages or so in your Bibles to John chapter 12 and verse 47. If anyone hears my words, John 12, 47, and does not believe. So is it possible to hear and not believe? Of course. That's, that, that's true not just in religious overtones. That's true uh, in any sort of academic uh, pursuit. You can hear it, but you don't believe it or don't apply it. But Jesus comes along and says, if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then to get to the point, verse 48, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. And there's, here's why we focus on the word so very much. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Jesus is very specific. And that is the word is the book of judgment of right and wrong. And so we can't simply say, well, you believe differently than me. That does not matter. It does matter because the word matters. That's what will judge us in the last day. Someone once said that the judgment day will be an open book test where the Bible will be open. And it's as if someone says, well, wait a minute, I didn't know. And Jesus will say, or the Lord himself, God, uh, the Father will say, but it says right here, you can't do this or you must do this. And everyone will know the word. People will be good Bible students, it seems to me, or better Bible students on the day of judgment than ever before. And we've got to make sure that we are good students on this side of the judgment to prepare accordingly. And then in John chapter 14, in the next uh, page or so of your Bibles, John chapter 14, Jesus simply says in those powerful yet simplistic words, he says, if you love me, 
keep my commandments. Think about that for a moment. We could have a whole sermon just on that particular verse. If you love me, keep my commandments. Jesus doesn't say, if you love me, that's good enough. He says, if you love me, prove it by keeping my commandments. That's not always easy, is it? Sometimes that's hard to do, but we do it because it's the right thing to do. And it seems that Jesus makes a direct connection between specific commandment keeping and the ability to please him. You see, the arguments laid out by Jesus in the Gospel of John are in direct opposition to plea number three that separate and different beliefs don't really matter. What we do believe does matter. And then that leads us to our fourth and our final plea, and that is just find a church that fits you. You know, it would be, uh, as we sometimes look at 1 Corinthians 14, God is not the author of confusion. I can't imagine, and I've talked with people who are in this particular situation, uh, waking up one day, maybe you're uh, in your uh, late teens or, or 20s or 30s or maybe older, and you say, you know what? I think religion is important. Never felt that way before, but I'm going to start going to church. I'm going to start being uh, religious, whatever that may mean uh, these days to, to different people. Can you imagine doing that without any sort of guidance as to where you began or to where you begin? That would be a very frightening thing for me. And I've talked to people before who are now members of the Lord's church and and they say, I started out 20 years ago. I had no idea where to begin. What, what do you do? Do you go on Google and look up uh, Google reviews? Do you go to Yelp uh, and, and say, well, this church is recommended highly. This church is not recommended very highly. How do you go about starting? And for those of us who grew up in a church environment or we married someone who was a member of the church uh, or we had grandparents who went to the Lord's church, and that was kind of something that we remembered from 20 or 30 years earlier. We have that built-in advantage sometime. But for someone who doesn't know these things, where do you start? Because there are so many options to choose from, this is clearly an option. Find a church that fits you. And there are people who will come here from time to time and say, you know what? It was nice visiting, but this church doesn't fit me. I'm going to go to uh, a denomination of some sort. Uh, I was having a conversation with someone in our neighborhood just recently, and they made a comment that a person's uh, book or video that came out would be too radical for, for me, whatever that may mean. And I'm not really sure what that meant. I'm not sure that was a compliment or that was a derogatory remark. Uh, but it was too radical for someone with my belief set. But the fact of the matter is, is note if you would, uh, that nowhere in Scripture is this hinted at or even suggested. Let me suggest to you three facts here. One, again in the book of John, we are to draw near to Jesus. John 12 lays that out very nicely in verse 32. He says, I will draw all peoples to myself. So we have to be drawn to Jesus, which means, as we've already talked about, we have to be drawn to his words. We are to fear God. We are to keep his commandments, as is outlined in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. 
This doesn't seem to me to say, just find a church that fits you, but rather it says, fear God, keep his commandments, be responsible for doing what the Lord has asked you to do. And then let me suggest you number three, and this is important. Uh, for us as Christians, it is important for those in the denominational world, in a more general sense, that we can never be pastor or preacher-centric. Uh, we use the word pastor in 21st century religion a whole lot differently than was used in the first century. But you understand the point that I'm trying to make here, and that is so many of our friends will be very preacher-centric. Well, the reason that I go to church A, B, C, or D is because the pastor there is so dynamic and his messages are so powerful. And while we look at that and say, well, we would never be guilty of that, um, we've got to be careful that we're not David-centric or Leland-centric. We are God-centric. We are Christ-centric. On that note, let me me share with you some... uh, Carrie mentioned third opinions today. Uh, let me go to second opinions for a moment. We need to be careful with when a gospel meeting is announced in the area and a certain preacher is advertised that we don't say uh, to ourselves, oh, wow, now I've got to get to that meeting because that guy. I, there's nothing wrong with having your favorite preacher or favorite preachers. I have preachers that have molded me and that have shaped me and preachers that I really have enjoyed listening to over the course of 40-some years. There's nothing wrong with having preachers with different styles that really adapt to you more. Nothing wrong with that either. But if a preacher is preaching the truth, I'm there with him because he's there with Jesus, and that's what matters the most. And I think we all appreciate that, but we've got to make sure that we apply that. Let me just close here by saying, what are our answers to these pleas? By answering with scripture, as we have done, we can address these pleas and give truth-based answers as to why we do what we do and not what denominations do. Note, if you would, in closing, three simple observations. And that is, number one, we are added to the church that Jesus built, and it's that simple. In Acts 2 and verse 47, it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were saved or those who were being saved. Seemingly talking about the 3,000 individuals who had responded in the previous six or seven verses. So when I was baptized or when you were baptized, it very likely was either at a church building or perhaps in a river near the church building, uh, baptistry at a church building, for example, or in a river nearby, or maybe in someone's uh, pool or uh, bathtub or jacuzzi or whatever the case may be. We are added to the Lord's church. You aren't added to that particular location. Otherwise, there would be people who their church identity would be some ocean somewhere or some river somewhere. But it said we are added to the Lord's church. And one of the reasons I say that is because you will run into people in the denominational world who will suggest, well, if you want to be a member of church A, B, or C, you've got to be baptized, quote, again, into this particular denomination. Nowhere is that taught in Scripture. In fact, the only baptism for the remission of sins is the baptism as is taught in Acts chapter 2, Mark 16, and elsewhere in Scripture. 
Let me suggest to you, number two, that following New Testament patterns is essential for what we do today. And there are all kinds of examples of what I mean by that, but let me just list A, B, and C here real quickly here. One of those that we talk about uh, from time to time and that distinguishes us as members of the Lord's church from those of denominations is the Lord's Supper frequency. We could go and take the time to read these three passages, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Acts 20, and Matthew chapter 26. But you will notice, especially if you're new to the church of Christ, if you've never been uh, here before, you may notice that we partook of the Lord's Supper today, and lo and behold, it's Acts. It's, Acts. it's October the 16th. Uh, it's, it's, it's one of 52 Sundays in the year. Uh, it's not Easter. It's not around Christmas. It's not around some special event. It's not the first of the quarter. It's not the first of the month. And if you come back on the 23rd or come back on the 30th or come back on any Sunday in November or December, you'll find that every Lord's Day that we gather together, we partake of the Lord's Supper. And the reason that we do so is because that's what we see New Testament Christians doing 2,000 years ago as outlined in these three passages. And note that we, as members of the Church of Christ, are in the minority in our frequency. And that may come as a surprise to someone who's never explored outside of the Lord's church, or you don't have friends uh, who are members of denominations, or maybe you're very young in the faith. uh, And you may say, well, I've never heard of that before. And so this is something that we need to be ready to answer for and to give an answer to. Uh, B, or secondly, baptism is essential for the forgiveness of sins. We sometimes look at that and we take that for granted. Mark 16, 16 talks about that. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38 speaks to that. And note that we, as members of the Church of Christ, are a rarity for this teaching. Going back through the denominations that I had listed and referenced at the outset of our study, which has been really the focus of what we've been talking about today, most denominations will not teach that baptism is necessary for salvation. You say, well, how can they teach that when Mark 16, Acts 2, Acts 9, Acts 8 teach it? Well, you teach it through a, a course of mental gymnastics and linguistics and ways of, of putting things together, and you can make that argument. Someone once said, you can make the Bible say anything you want it to say, and that's right. But we want to make the Bible say what the—we don't want to make the Bible say anything. We want the Bible to speak for itself and God's Word to expound on the truth that we are to follow. And then let me suggest to you, C or number three, the idea that a weekly contribution— which we will uh, talk about at the conclusion of our services briefly, uh, is our sole means of fundraising. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 talks about the way in which Christians uh, 2,000 years ago laid by in store on the first day of the week. Did you know that there is an entire industry that is in existence, and there are professionals that make a living off of helping churches do capital campaigns and and raise more money. And that's because most churches choose to do this. And many churches will raise funds on non-Sundays. I was at a small church preaching uh, probably 15, 20 years ago, 
and a very, very small church, maybe 15, 20 people. Uh, and they were very much struggling with funds. And someone who is not a member of the church and who wasn't familiar with what the scriptures taught says, well, there are different ways to raise money. Why don't we just do that? And I said, well, we can't do that because of these scriptures and because of what uh, the traditions are in the New Testament that we are to follow. But it seems very foreign in a world that is driven by money that we say, we don't want your money on the non-Lord's day. Uh, and if you're visiting with us, that's not your responsibility in the first place. That's the responsibility of our members who are present here today. Well, let me conclude with number three, and that is our answers to these pleas goes to the idea that we choose to not do what denominations do when their practices are in conflict with New Testament patterns. I know that's a lot of words. It's a lot of uh, different uh, things to say. But simply put, if something is in conflict with what we find in the New Testament, we say, I'm not going to do it. I want to do what this book tells me to do. That's when it comes to teaching false doctrine. For example, we talked about the idea of salvation by belief only. The vast majority of religious denominations today will not ask you to be baptized. They may not even ask you to repent. They may not ask you to confess that Jesus is the Christ. They will instead say, say the, the sinner's prayer, wherever that comes from, or, or ask Jesus into your heart, or accept him as your personal savior. These are all things that are foreign to the New Testament. And therefore, we don't practice them. And we say, we're going to stay away from those particular things. Or that, as we've talked about in the course of our study together today, that any church is as, quote, good as another. And it's true in adopting unauthorized practices. For example, there are churches that are very steeped in the idea of a social gospel, wherein rather than being focused on the spiritual things, we can be focused on the financial things. We can be focused on uh, helping uh, with a blood drive. We can be focused uh, and use our attention to, to just having a food bank open to the entire community. Remember that our focus is spiritual, spiritual, spiritual. It doesn't mean we don't care about the physical needs of one another. That's why we have announcements sometimes to say so-and-so is suffering with cancer. We want to pray for that person and pray for her family. And it's true when it comes to kitchens or daycares or unauthorized practices that are present in so many churches. And those are things that churches that we see in the denominational world just routinely in, involve themselves with. And we say, well, let's, let's not get involved in that because as Romans chapter 14 says that the gospel is about uh, peace and pursuing peace and righteousness and good and not about the physical things of this world. These are false denominational pleas. And they tug at our heartstrings, don't they, sometimes? Partly because we have friends and family that are involved in these things. And partly because they are emotional arguments that get our, 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 our blood feeling good and warm. But we've got to do what the Lord wants us to do. And as we began, we go back to now at the end. We want to be the church that belongs to Jesus the Christ. That's what we are inviting you to become a part of. We don't have the power to add you to the church. 
we have the ability to provide for you God's word, which educates you and teaches you and invites you to become a member of the Lord's church. And that's something that we are inviting you to do today. It's, it's possible that there uh, are some uh, that are present here today that are old enough to know what is right and what is wrong. You're old enough to have listened to everything that I've said over the last 30-some minutes. And you say, I, I understand that, but I don't want to obey it. And now's a, as good of a time as any for you to say, it's time for me to be obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ by being baptized to have my sins washed away. And we'd be glad to help you in that process. Maybe you're still on that path of trying to figure things out and you want to study further. We would welcome the opportunity to study with you. If you're a child of God and you're not living correctly uh, and maybe you need some study, we'd be glad to help you in that or you need to make things right. We'd be glad to pray for you even yet this morning. If we can help or assist you in any way, let us know while together we stand and while we sing.